You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm James Wang, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Most of us have no direct connection to venture capital or private equity. Or so I thought, until I pondered the question more thoroughly. I myself, as a physician, have encountered both entities, and those encounters have been, hmm, shall I say, pretty unpleasant. Venture capital-based electronic medical records upended medicine. We spent hundreds of hours learning them, thousands of hours inputting data, billions of dollars to buy expensive hardware and software, and years later, healthcare is no safer, less expensive, or more efficient. Our grand venture capital-based experiment was a huge disaster for doctors, for patients, everyone, except, of course, the venture capitalists. Private equity has also made my life more complicated. Private equity bought the nursing home company that I worked with at several local locations. They started by stripping all the land and property and selling it for a profit. Over the next 10 years, the quality of the care faltered, staffing ratios declined, and eventually all the facilities were shuttered or sold to other companies. So I guess you could say that my interactions have been relatively negative. Today, however, I invite James Wang on the show to give another perspective. We discuss the role of venture capital and how it can benefit both individual investors and society. James Wang is a general partner at Creative Ventures, a deep tech venture firm investing in early stage companies solving critical global scale challenges like rising healthcare costs, labor shortages, and causes and effects of climate change. James leads Creative Ventures AI Investments. Previously, he oversaw the launch announcement and branding for Google X's Machini project, was on the core investment team at Bridgewater Associates, and co-founded and managed a nonprofit consulting group specializing in microfinance in the developing world. James Wang, welcome to Earn and Invest. James, frankly, venture capital, as well as private equity, has gotten a bad name in popular culture. There's an assumed ethos of profits over people. Is this view incorrect? Is it unfair? I think, and thanks, Jordan, and appreciate you having me on the podcast. And honestly, I think that some of it is probably warranted, depending on the firm, depending on the direction of some of them. But a lot of the improvements in our lives, a lot of the big companies now that we sort of take for granted, and a lot of the companies in individual investors' portfolios at this point are actually venture-backed companies. If you look at, say, all of the different FANG companies in terms of the different tech companies, and a lot of the landscape and ecosystem of where we live today, a lot of that really was from innovation financing. And there's very specific 
interesting things, I think, to talk about in terms of how some of that's been applied, especially within the healthcare sector. But I would say that in terms of the industry, some of it's been good, some of it's been bad, but I think that's pretty much the case for most industries that I think you can point to. So let's start with the basics. We bandy around this term venture capital, but I feel like a lot of people don't actually know what that is. Can you give us just a thumbnail description of what venture capital is? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because it's evolved a lot over time, too. I think earlier on, say 20 years ago, venture capital was pretty much investing in small early stage companies that we would expect to grow at a phenomenal rate and scale to be something that touches everyone's lives, essentially. So that's your Facebook, that's your Google in terms of classic examples. But if you go even further back, I mean, Apple, Intel, even further back, Fairchild, these were all cases of companies that became pretty large, touched everyone's lives, and started as pretty small companies where the money going in was extremely risky for the investor. So that pretty much is the definition classically of venture capital. I think in the past, say, 10 years, it's gotten a little more diluted in the sense that venture capital has started to run a little bit into private equity, which you talked a little bit about too. And some of the distinctions have disappeared to some degree as venture capital has expanded and really ballooned as an industry. Can you talk about classically the difference between venture capital and private equity? Because like you said, the lines seem to be blurring now, but what was the idea originally? Yeah. So venture capital, the distinction and sort of mental image that you'd have is, again, like something like a Google, a Facebook, et cetera, something that started in a garage, which in certain cases might or might not actually be true, but started in a garage and scales a huge amount. So you essentially you're investing in nothing. Or in certain cases, you're literally just investing in the team and maybe a little bit of a notion of a technology. Private equity, on the other hand, is generally about taking advantage of a structure, either financial or operational, and basically being able to do something as a private investor that takes over a particular company and somehow squeezes some sort of efficiency or profits out of it. That can be good or that can be bad, right? Like in the example that you gave, it can actually disrupt a lot of people's lives. In other cases and other groups, you might actually see them take over a floundering company that has been operationally poorly managed. And because now the private equity firm is on the hook for how it does, they manage it much better and turn it around, basically make much more in terms of operational efficiency and profits, and then turn around and sell it back to the market. You know, what becomes clear as we have this conversation is that venture capital and private equity are tools. So it's really hard to say that they're good or bad. It's really more about the intentions of the people who are wielding those tools. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, in terms of venture capital, I mean, a lot of the obsessions that we've had, and look, I have my own bias in terms of the deep tech investing that we do. So we think real technology in terms of this and these particular areas that we target, which we see as some of the biggest challenges facing humanity. We care a lot about these areas. We think that if we can take these companies that say address healthcare costs, that address labor shortages, that address climate change and scale those things up, it's going to make a massive difference to everyone's lives. It does make a difference what you choose to focus on. So if you're, say, focusing on very specific areas in terms of, and, you know, that there's 
different opinions on this, but say in terms of certain areas of crypto, I mean, certain venture capitalists who went in and certain companies who went in and were really looking to sort of turn around a quick buck in terms of that. I'm not saying everyone was like that, but it really depends on what you target and what you're trying to use it for. So I agree completely. It's a tool and intentions and what you do with it matters. As we continue this discussion, it becomes really clear to me that even if you're your average Joe or Jane investor, venture capital affects your life. And I feel like a lot of people don't realize that maybe they're an index investor, maybe they own a few stocks of big companies they really like, but most people aren't in touch with the fact that this is something that's important to you as a small investor, just as much as it is to someone who has millions or billions to invest. Yeah. And depending on how you specifically count it, something like 70 or 80% of many of the indices now are pretty much venture-backed companies at some point or other. So even if you yourself are not a investor who invests in venture capital, and I think there's an interesting question there, sort of as a little bit of a side note, since some of the stuff with the Jobs Act, some of the stuff with financial innovations, we're trying to actually give individual investors more access to these asset classes that institutions and whatnot have piled into and made a bunch of money from. So there's a little bit of a question of equitable access. I understand the balance of it, but we can get into that specific topic later. But sort of going back to it, a lot of these indices, if you're an index investor, many of those companies, majority of those companies at this point have been at some point venture backed. So it's definitely touched your life previously or at this point. So it is very a very important industry to sort of at least keep a pulse on in terms of seeing where things are going. Yeah, I want to be clear about this point because I think there's a dichotomy there that we don't often talk about. One case is you are actually putting money into a venture capital firm or helping a venture capital firm raise money. So that is one way to invest. But that's not what everyone does. Maybe what you were talking about, maybe those type of investments need to be more equitable. We could argue that one way or another. Sure. But that's not the same as you putting money in the stock market and those companies that are part of the stock market have had some venture capital funding or direction in the past. So they're two separate things, but ultimately both touch almost every investor's life. Right. And, you know, in certain cases, some of the venture capital firms, I think Sequoia being the most prominent example, still have a lot of influence over the different companies that are in there. So, for example, NVIDIA was a uh, early Sequoia company, and there are still board members who are from Sequoia on the board. A lot of these companies still have significant guidance from the venture capital industry at this point, even after being public companies and even after becoming massive. So we're going to talk more about what you do at Creative Ventures. But before we get there, just wondering, how does a guy like you end up in venture capital? If people listen to this saying me or one of my children or someone may be interested in being more directly involved in this field, how did you end up there? Yeah, I think I for me it was quite accidental. So I think you had mentioned that uh, you know, I had some experience in terms of the nonprofit sector. I ended up at Bridgewater Associates, which is a big hedge fund. After that, I came I left that, came to the Bay Area because I wanted to get more involved in technology, got involved in Google, got involved in a lot of different things in terms of startups. And really how I ended up in VC for this particular one was a couple of classmates of mine from Berkeley 
went off and said, we want to do a venture capital fund. I told them it's a terrible idea. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> and explained all the reasons why and explained the alternatives that they can do. And then they came back to me, I don't know, a few weeks later and said, yeah, so we did it. And uh, you're right, it is pretty hard. Could you help? <laughs> Slowly, they sort of reeled me in in that particular way. So a little bit of a bait and switch there. I mean, it's it's been interesting. And though I will also say, at least for listeners listening in terms of this, it is a tough industry to break into, especially getting on something on partner track, essentially. So it's similar to if listeners are familiar with consulting firms or law firms or a lot of these sort of partner based firms. There are a finite number of partner positions typically. And in general, it does not usually go from internal promotion. So for a lot of the young folks who've come up to me and basically asked, Hey, how do I break into venture capital? I actually suggest to most of them, go get involved in startups, go get involved in, I mean, in certain cases, if it's your personal interest, like, sure, equity analyzing, so being an equity analyst or something in the tech sector or some of these other things, because I've seen a lot of the best partners actually come from very diverse and different sort of fields where they end up getting pulled into the field kind of by accident, but bring a lot of the interdisciplinary skills from other walks of life coming in. So I, I would say that most people who I found who do really well in this sort of get into it accidentally. So let's jump into what you do at Creative Ventures. You call it a deep tech venture firm. What is deep tech? Yeah, deep tech, I think, has been a lot in the eye of the beholder. Boston Consulting Group put a formal report together. So I guess now there's a formal definition of it. And <laughs> now, that, now that they've put a stamp on it in terms of AI, robotics, synthetic biology, and advanced materials. Though for us, I think we were investing in those particular things before it was cool and had a term coined for it. But that's that's broadly some of the now more accepted definition by people around what deep tech is. If you think about it, it's a lot of these technologies that have much more physical manifestation and impact. So even in terms of AI, if we're talking about AI, there's a lot of interesting and overhyped, mind you, but interesting mm -hmm. applications in, say, the healthcare field. And of course, there's just the general hype about AI right now in terms of ChatGPT and whatnot, but we can get into that as well if we really wanted to. But most of these things have physical manifestations. And one of the interesting things is, and I think something to think about as individual investors thinking about the broader markets, depending on how you look at them and how you invest, a lot of the technologies that are coming up at this point actually look like the first generation of, say, semiconductors or many of the technologies back then than they do the past 20 years or so. The past 20 years, we've basically seen a big explosion of software. You know, Mark Andreessen's software is eating the world, if people are familiar with that quote. And a lot of these companies end up being able to have very quick starts, very high ability to pivot all over the place and very high ability to target very specific markets and build up a big company and say, you know, CRM for Salesforce management, or for example, those ERP systems in terms of enterprise resource planning or the uh, electronic health records that you're talking about. So a lot of very specific ability to target specific areas, but very fast, very quick sells to like Google or whatnot. 
But at this point, when we're looking at a lot of the core technologies that are coming up at this point, even AI, say, it doesn't act the same way that software does. If you think about AI, it actually looks like semiconductor <laughs> investing or semiconductor companies, because what you get is something that has a frontier that's moving extremely quickly, something that takes, in certain cases, millions of dollars to train and actually build up in terms of that. So it looks very, very different. It actually looks much more like a semiconductor company and upfront capital, upfront time. Anyway, sort of a long way of saying that a lot of the technologies now with deep tech are really evolving in a certain direction that will really change a lot of our lives, but also change quite a bit about how the tech industry itself works and how that how that looks within the broader market. How does this make deep tech venture capital different than general venture capital? Yeah. So a lot of general venture capital, and I know listeners probably haven't heard too many venture capital pitches, but most of them will go along the lines of, hey, we have great access to the best founders and it's all about the team and we invest in the best teams. And that's almost the end of the story <laughs> uh, because especially within software, even if you end up in the wrong market, the wrong place, what the best entrepreneurs can do is they can just go, okay, well, we're going to change the code, change some of the Google AdWords target or whatever, and bada bing, bada boom, suddenly you're in a new market and suddenly you can try again, right? Uh, that doesn't really work for deep tech. So if you're talking about synthetic biology, you're not going to magically make the depending on how you're doing it, yeast, bacteria, whatever, like suddenly change what they're doing overnight. You're not going to be able to make advanced materials suddenly, like again, shift. And even in terms of AI, which people think is kind of light because of its software, it's not, right? Like if you think about ChatGPT or whatever, where we're talking about millions of dollars invested in training the thing, that's a lot of upfront capital <laughs> before you even have the thing do a single thing, right? I feel like I can't resist chatting for a moment about AI, you kind of talked a little bit about this idea of overhype. Do you think we're overhyping AI right now? And I guess I wouldn't expect that coming from a deep tech venture capitalist. I think the overhype nature of it is coming from the belief, it's extrapolation, right? Right now, it's like, okay, ChatGPT and some of these things have gotten a lot of adoption, and suddenly we're able to increase productivity a lot. But we're already seeing a lot of level off of what it can do. I think most human beings are very hard, or sorry, are very, have a lot of difficulty thinking about exponential curves. They either underestimated a significant amount or just extrapolated out and massively overestimated. I think most of the AI technologies that are towards consumer and towards, say, white collar jobs in terms of some of these things are overhyped. We're already seeing a leveling off of what these things can do. And in terms of the value of some of these companies or value of some of these jobs and the value of some of this work, you still want, say, a radiologist in the loop in terms of thinking about these radiology scans. It's important enough that you definitely want that person in there. And AI itself has not gotten to the point where it's smart enough, quote unquote, to actually handle a lot of these tasks. On the other hand, AI is underappreciated in how it can change the world in a lot of different ways. So, for example, with some of the synthetic biology or pharmaceutical biologics and design of some of those things or design of advanced materials, it's not really in people's minds. It's not really in people's eyes. So they don't see it and don't realize that, hey, in 10 years, we could have a bunch of these materials in our everyday lives 
completely different from the materials we have today. And all of it was designed by AI. Like that's not really in some in people's minds. Instead, they're thinking about how ChatGPT will take over everything. Yeah, I'm reminded on a much simpler level of the first time someone went to ChatGPT and said, create a computer program in this language that does this and how quickly it came up with an elegant solution. And as you're talking about even biologics and those kind of things, I'm thinking about how difficult it is for the human mind to do some of that creative work that mixes creativity with logic, et cetera. And how how AI may be able to solve some of those problems and yet not take the place of most humans in their jobs. Right. I mean, the way that I've described chat GPT and similar sort of LLMs, large language models, which are which is the technology underlying chat GPT, BARD, and all of these other like chatbots, basically. How I've described it is it is a talented intern. (laughs) So what you would expect a talented intern to do, you should expect it to be able to do what you would not expect a talented intern to do. You should not expect it to be able to do. So you want it to synthesize a bunch of different research materials for you can do. You want it to invent a new way of doing whatever it is not going to happen. We are talking to James Wang. He's a general partner at Creative Ventures, a deep tech venture firm investing in early stage companies, solving critical global scale challenges like rising healthcare costs, labor shortages, and the causes and effects of climate change. And we are talking venture capital. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We are talking to James Wang, who leads Creative Ventures' AI investment platform, and we are discussing venture capital and the role it plays in all investors' lives, not just in people who are millionaires or billionaires. Let's talk about Creative Ventures specifically. Tell us about the process you guys go through when deciding what types of companies to invest in. How do you decide which companies fit your profile? I think we're quite unique in this particular regard. So I wouldn't take this as the way that every venture capital firm works. But because of the area that we invest in, in terms of deep tech, there's a lot of things that this technology can do. It's very, very hard to, as said, pivot, meaning you can't just change what you're doing overnight. It actually takes a lot of time, a lot of work, in certain cases, years of research to go in a certain direction. So what we do is on our side, we do thousands of hours of research on our side really understand, okay, say these big trends we're talking about, labor shortages, for example, where are the biggest labor shortages? Well, if you look at it, it's things in terms of like food services, construction, and some of these other areas that take a lot of labor. A lot of people don't really want to do as much anymore. And as far as each individual person is concerned, there's sort of a limit to how productive a specific person can be. So we look at those, then we dig down and really understand, all right, specifically for these industries, what is the biggest problem for them? And where are some emerging technologies, say in AI and robotics, that can address some of these? So we go through this process with every single area that we invest in, every single company we end up investing in. And we basically have a clear set of rules of what specific type of problem should it be solving and what kind of technologies might be candidates in terms of being able to solve that. So that's our starting point. We meet a bunch of different companies. We're pretty active in a lot of different labs, grant reviews, other things in terms of like knowing what's coming down the pipeline. And then from there, we're able to cultivate the relationships and then invest in different companies that are addressing these big problems. So let's turn it around from the other side. Let's say you are a founder and you're looking for venture capital support and possibly money. What should you be looking at as a founder when trying to figure out how you can interact with venture capital? Yeah, I would say look at what previous companies they've invested in, sort of get your reference checks and whatnot in terms of like how they are as investors. I think a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate how much of an impact good investors can have and 
radically underestimate how much of an impact bad investors can have. So in terms of startups are hard enough, if you have someone basically dragging you in the wrong direction constantly, that's not a good thing. And that's also something that's oftentimes fatal to an early stage company. So I, I think a lot of people will probably be asking for like hot tips about how to get in touch with venture capitalists. I would say, first off, make sure that you're actually finding the right person. Maybe it's kind of like dating. It's like, yeah, if you're desperate enough, you kind of will go anyone will work. But in reality, for your own sanity and mental health, it's definitely good to sort of try to look and try to figure out what a high quality one is. Now, in terms of actually reaching out, mostly it's going to be through introductions. VCs, as you can imagine, get bombarded by spam email and cold outreach all the time. We try to actually sort through it ourselves because some of the people who we've actually invested in have been cold outreach. And in certain cases, if you just stay purely within your network, you're going to get a pretty pretty homogenous subset of people. So we try to explore outside of that. But that being said, it's always better and always easier if you have someone that the VC trusts putting you in front of them. James, is it wrong to think the role of venture capital for new and startup companies is to provide money only? Because I feel like that's what most people think venture capital does. But you were kind of saying, look, you know, a bad venture capital company could really hurt, hurt a small startup. What types of input do they give besides just the cash flow? Yeah, I mean, good ones are going to be able to help you better understand how to go to market, better understand, if nothing else, how to structure your company for the next round of financing. So the thing about most VC-backed companies is you are a company that is likely going to be unprofitable, maybe not in terms of unit economics, but just unprofitable because you're spending much more money than you're making for a long time. That means that one that the next milestone is essentially going off and getting the next round of financing. If nothing else, the the VC should be able to give you a really good idea and you should ask, what do I need to get to the next round of funding? And what do I need for the next set of milestones? So for aspiring founders out there, this is probably a useful thing to think about because I find most founders don't think about it in this particular way, which is, What VCs are buying and what all investors are buying are your milestones. So you are basically like going to a store. I'm presenting to you. Hey, do you want to buy these milestones? I have this one for 1 million and I have this one for 5 million. The 5 million one, even if you are the same company, (laughs) could be much more attractive because it gets you much more and somewhere much more interesting. The only caveat to that is just... If someone's selling you a much more expensive thing, you need to make sure that that thing is real, right? So there's a level of credibility also layered into it. But if you promise much more and try to raise much more, that can actually be much more interesting if you're able to be credible than a smaller set of milestones or whatnot, even if you're the same company. So it's not to say just raise bigger and bigger rounds. It's just to say, think about it from the perspective of what you're selling is the milestones. There is a fairy tale going around about venture capitals, and I want you to tell me if it rings true or not. They say that venture capitalists put money for every 10 businesses they put money in, they expect nine to fail or eight to fail. Is that true? And if so, 
I think that would give me some trepidation as a founder going towards venture capital, because if I got bucketed into one of those 80 or 90%, that's probably going to fail. I wouldn't probably be getting the support I need. Yeah. And that's a challenge in terms of this, especially with some of the bigger VC firms. So this goes back to find the right investor, right? And I don't just mean that from the perspective of, oh, just make sure that, you know, they have a good reputation or whatnot, which means you take all of the big brand names off the shelf and go, yes, absolutely for those. Because that exact trend, especially for the big brand names is exactly what happens. And I'd say one in 10 is generous for certain of these firms. I won't name specific ones, but certain of them expect one in a hundred or one in a thousand. Hmm. (laughs) So as far as that goes, it is very common if you are an earlier stage company to basically, yeah, be bucketed into a place where no, the, the firm is not coming back into your next round, which also raises some questions say, and you know, they're, it's actually, they're relatively well-known in terms of, so let's say in terms of Andreessen or whatnot, like comes into one of your early rounds, but doesn't come into your next round. It may be perfectly reasonable why not between like, oh, well, you've changed in terms of direction or whatever. But regardless, it's an explanation you need to give. And it's like, so why did they choose not to re-up? Why did they choose not to come in at this point? So it does matter a lot in terms of what specific investor you choose in terms of that. And yeah, as far as some of the stats go. It really depends on the industry though, too. I think for our portfolio at last count, we have something like an 82% survival rate. So different VCs have different models. The level of support that they give is different and the level of expectation of how many companies survive or not is also different. Talk to me about both the positive and negative ways that creative venture exits companies. And I guess when I'm saying negative, I don't mean you're doing anything negative, but exiting a company that maybe is not doing as well versus exiting a company that's doing very well. How do you guys get out? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, the classic way that it always used to be done was IPOs, which have become less common since they are, they do take a lot of time, energy, and you require a certain size of company in order to go public. So IPO is one, and we have a company moving in that particular direction. Another, the direction for us that's more common is actually merger and acquisition, so M&A. So a big company will buy a smaller company. This is pretty common in medical devices, actually. So if you think about a medical device company, something innovative, something interesting, you go out, you get FDA clearance or approval, you go through and then basically start to market it and find that, oh yeah, clinicians and everyone else is finding it useful. And then the big companies say Medtronic or Stryker, or one of these big giants will go, okay, we'll buy you. And we already have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of salespeople all around the world that will then push it to all of our customers, basically. So a lot of these different industries have pretty logical M&As as well. Then there have been other ways that Companies have gone public. There's SPACs for a while, which I'm sure people remember, which were almost universally a disaster for the companies, the investors, and everyone except for the SPAC sponsors who basically made money from doing the SPACs. <laughs> but yeah, the IPO and MA are usually the most typical. Let's look at some examples for creative ventures 
what do you look at as as one of your biggest successes? And and then maybe give me an example of, and it doesn't have to be creative ventures, but venture capital gone bad, an example of where it didn't work. Sure. So from the perspective of one particular company, I'd say that's our biggest success story and one of the oldest investments that one of the older investments that we have, though it's only been about six years. It's a portable ultrasound company that is able to shrink down the size of ultrasound, use semiconductors instead of traditional ultrasound arrays in order to create the device so that you can essentially have a very cheap device that in certain cases cost less than all traditional ultrasound probes and have a full-scale ultrasound that has similar resolution to a full-scale ultrasound. So that's one of our most successful companies in terms of it. It's gone through, you know, a lot of different changes. It's gone through a lot of different like heartaches over time or whatnot and a lot of challenging times. But at this point, it's doing really well. It's basically been able to develop its product and get really great reception from the market. In terms of a less successful story, I think this is a useful cautionary tale. I don't think I'll, I'm not going to name the specific company and I'm actually probably not even going to name the specific industry, but it, because it makes it too easy to nail down, but it's a deep tech company as said, they were in an area where essentially everyone else spacked at a certain period of time. And this company ended up being, in our opinion, the one with the best technology, like by far the best technology, sort of world revolutionary technology. But they just ended up in a situation where because they were behind on the amount of money that they had versus everyone else who literally has half a billion dollars in their bank account, and that's not even an exaggeration, they ended up with all of their best engineers poached away where you literally were getting people reaching out on LinkedIn. I'll pay you 3x your current salary if you will leave this company and come join our company that had just backed. And that essentially killed the company. And you were asking a little bit before about how bad exits happen. I mean, this one, we didn't lose money in terms of it, but we did exit at a far less interesting outcome in terms of price and everything than we expected it to, in part because it was eventually forced to sell to one of these SPACT companies just because they ended up being poached and poached to death because they ended up in an industry that is capital intensive and everyone else basically utilized that capital to kill the company. What about the most fun you've had working on a project? Any projects specifically that were just a joy to work on regardless of the outcome? I think a lot of these different companies are pretty fun to work on, especially as you watch a Oftentimes, PhD or less experienced founder coming into the industry and them actually evolving into a more and more and more capable CEO and person who's able to actually take on a lot of these different areas. Because being a CEO of a startup company is definitely an interdisciplinary role. (laughs) And uh, you kind of need to be an interdisciplinary athlete, depending on how you're thinking about that. And I think one of the really fun companies that I've had just sort of seeing them develop and grow as a neurology related startup. They essentially use a mixture of AI and lasers to sort of put a pop culture thing on it. But yeah, it is an ophthalmology laser, but lasers to track the development and the development 
of and distinguishing between different neurological diseases a, in a highly accurate way. But the, the CEO is a first-time founder. She was a PhD, no business background at all. And she basically figured out how to start scrambling for different pharma deals, deals with CROs, deals with a lot of these different groups that I thought was super impressive. And I've been super excited to watch her learn and grow. To pivot to the big picture, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of the people listening right now are not putting millions of dollars into venture capital. Why does it matter to your average investor and, and what kind of things should your average investor know about venture capital so that they can be successful in the future? I mean, I there are actually platforms and ways for individual investors to try to get involved in VC. I have mixed feelings about sort of your typical person jumping into it because it's the capital is locked up for much longer than you expect. So seven to 10 years, even and the returns could be great. But then again, the returns might not. And that's just a lot of money that essentially that you've opportunity cost wasted for the past seven to 10 years. I think one of the big things to know about it, though, is how big of an, a role it has in the broader financial economy. So this is getting into also just how a lot of the different financial economy works. But a lot of the biggest institutions out there are actually pension funds, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds. But a lot of these big groups, in a way of actually less wealthy people, because people always think about, yeah, Bill Gates and these other people, that's where all the money is. And actually, it's the big pools of money from many, many different people. So many of these institutions are very heavily concentrated in venture capital at this point. When I was at Bridgewater and talking to different of these institutions, I remember what, like many institutions had like one or 2% PEVC allocation, meaning they had one to 2% in both PE and VC. Nowadays, I actually see, say, for example, with Yale and some of these others, they have, say, I don't know, a 20% PE allocation. And in certain cases, they have a 30% VC allocation. <laughs> so practically half of their portfolio is illiquid, meaning you can't exit these things, PE and VC allocations. And because so much money is going into these two, it has a big, big impact on where the economy goes and what is actually going to be coming up the curve. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who don't realize for these huge endowments and also for things like family offices, for both diversification and returns, they can't just throw all their money in an S&P 500 index. Like your right. average single investor, someone who doesn't want to spend their life studying this stuff says, eh, you know, I'll put my money in a total market index and I'll be great and I'll get this great return and everything is good. But for these large endowments and for some of these family offices, it would be dangerous for them to do that. They need higher returns often and they also need much more broad diversification. And this is one of the ways they do that. So when we're talking about those larger sums of money in the US especially, that is where a lot of this money is going. Another thing you kind of mentioned that I just wanted to touch on a bit is when you talked about individuals' access to venture capital, what we're really talking about is is crowdsourcing, crowdfunding type platforms, right? Is that what, what you're kind of talking about? The way that an individual yeah. investor who doesn't have millions of dollars can still maybe get a small piece of what it's like to be involved in venture capital. Yeah, exactly. And I have mixed feelings about those because it is actually quite hard to access good venture capital in that particular way. And I think most investors are 
honestly not if you can think about it in theory and be totally fine and go yeah i can bury this money for the next seven years or something and be totally okay theory and practice are quite different <laughs> so I, I have mixed feelings in terms of it but it is an interesting thing to think about and hopefully there will be financial innovations in the future because this is how a lot of big institutions are investing their money and how they're making their returns, especially during the time period where there were very low interest rates. And essentially, you could save your money and put it in and invest somewhere and not actually get that much back, which was actually one of the big impetuses for why venture capital grew so much. How do you think venture capital is going to evolve over the next decade? How's it going to change? I think that venture capital will start to require more and more differentiation and more and more specialization. Why do I say that? It's that thing that I said earlier, which is VCs kind of starting to blend into PE in the sense of they've the funds have gotten bigger and bigger. Many of the well-known funds are still generalist funds. They invest in anything and everything, right? In anything in life and in business, you always have to have an edge. And a lot of these big VC firms is big edge was, look, we are the best known and we have the most money. Guess what? Once you've actually upgraded yourself to the big boy <laughs> leagues in terms of the big PE firms and big financial institutions, these VC firms do not actually have the most money. And in terms of reputation, in certain cases, that's mattering less and less as venture capital has grown and more and more firms have gotten out there. So I think VC will actually go through an interesting transition where a lot of these different VC firms will need to specialize more and more, have more and more specific subject area knowledge, especially as technology gets harder and harder to invest in because the depth of the technology is harder to understand. The specific difficulty of actually executing some of this stuff gets harder and harder. So I think that VC is going to go in a pretty interesting direction in the same way that just general technology will. Well, James, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I specifically wanted to do this show to talk about venture capital, not in a negative way, but to show how it actually leads to innovation as well as the fueling of our economy. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and how people can reach out. Let's start with Creative Ventures. If people want to know more about Creative Ventures or you specifically, how can they learn about you? So our our website is creativeventures.vc in terms of reaching out to me specifically. I do have my DMs open in Twitter or X or whatever that thing is called at this point. <laughs> but you can also email us at invest at creativeventures.vc. We do check that email. It might take a while since we get a lot of emails, but we do have that. And for myself, as said, I am on the different social media networks. My specific handle is usually a James Wang, which is a little bit of a joke since many of the different organizations I've been part of over time. I'm not the only James Wang. So I am one of them. So a James Wang. And yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk to folks. It just might take a while. <laughs> James Wang of Creative Ventures, thank you so much for coming on Earn and Invest today. All right. Thanks so much, Jordan. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. 
As some of you might know, I actually have SpeakPipe on my website. What that means is you can leave me a voice message and I can talk about what is on your mind. In fact, someone did that recently. Mike from Ohio left me a message and I thought I would take the chance to discuss this important topic which he brought up here on the show. So without further ado, here's Mike. Hey, Doc. Mike from Ohio. I really appreciate the effort you've been putting out through your podcast and through your book to try to approach financial independence from a holistic perspective rather than purely financial. Your recent podcast with Topia and the Coast Fi uh, got me thinking kind of along the lines of how this might apply in my own life. So my background is I'm almost 40 and am going through evaluations regarding undiagnosed ADHD which brings its own complications with daily life, let alone my actual work, let alone any sort of additional uh, side income and trying to balance all of the different pieces. Didn't know if you had any potential resources or folks that might be able to speak to this. Hope you have a fantastic day and even better weekend if you hear this during the weekday. Take care. Thank you, Mike, for sending us this voicemail. I have a bunch of thoughts. First and foremost, I am a doctor. I have a medical degree, but nothing I say here should be medical advice, either for you, Mike, or for anyone else listening to the show. We are doing this for entertainment purposes, and I am just telling you kind of what I think about this voicemail. I am also not an ADHD expert. Uh, So I did treat some ADHD for adults as a general internist, but this is not my field of specialty. All that being said, Mike, I'm kind of taken by this message. I really think there are two different ways for you to go. First and foremost, you're in the process of having ADHD diagnosed. Let's say the diagnosis is made. The question is, how much is this impacting your life? And there are really two roads to take. Some people may say, you know what, this is impacting my life, but not in a horrendous way. I'd prefer not to be on medicines. And so maybe I'll do some therapy, but ultimately I'm going to change my life to fit who I am, to fit the ADHD in me. That's one pathway where you're really changing your world to fit who you are, as opposed to trying to change who you are to fit your world. Now, the other pathway you could take is say, look, this ADHD is causing me major problems and I'm not being successful. Therefore, I'm going to aggressively treat this. Maybe I'm going to get prescribed medicines to get this ADHD under control. Now, if that's the case, you're really trying to change yourself in order so you can do some of the more traditional things, whether that's work or side hustle or what it is. I think you have to answer that question first. Once you answer that question, we can then look at your work and financial independence lifestyle and try to figure it out. If you are from that first group, the group of people who said, you know what, I kind of like how I am. I don't really want to treat this. I've gotten along fine so far. Maybe what you need to do then is to start looking at your workplace and your considerations of things like side hustle, and you have to orient those towards your ADHD personality, right? So Maybe the types of side hustles you do are things you can pick up and put down quickly. Maybe it's something that gets you outside in the world or moving. Maybe you're going to start a 
dog walking app and half the time you're going to be spent outside walking dogs around the neighborhood. Something that might fit some of the ADHD you have. The key is that you look at these side hustles, you look at these activities, and you find ones that you can do even with your inability to concentrate or spend large amounts of time doing specific things, what have you. Whatever the symptoms are of your ADHD, which don't help you in a traditional job, maybe you can use those symptoms to help you form a side hustle where it fits you much better. Maybe something more creative, again, maybe something on the go, what have you. Or maybe you're the second kind of person we mentioned who wants treatment. And if you start getting medical treatment for this, you might find that you can concentrate more and you can do what traditionally people did to make more money. Maybe that's climbing up the corporate ladder. Maybe that's starting side hustles, which are a little bit more traditional. They require a little more concentration. Maybe that's something like real estate or what have you. The point is you have to decide where you are with this ADHD, whether you want to treat it or not, and then build your financial plans around that. And I think either can work. I know people who have untreated ADHD and they work in creative fields. They work in fields where they're their own bosses and they can start and stop on their own time. They sometimes provide services instead of products. So when they are there... They're intentional and available, and when they're not working, they're doing other things. All of this is possible if that's the road you want to go down. On the other hand, I also know people who decided to take medicines for ADHD, and they found they could concentrate a lot better, and then they could do some of those more traditional things. The point is, for either case, is fine. You just have to find what's right for you. And this gets back to a lot of what I talk about in Taking Stock. It's you have to decide who you are, what that identity is, what your sense of purpose is. And and for you, your sense of identity may very much have that ADHD as part of it. Once you kind of are understanding of who you are and what you're about, you can then build your financial framework around it. There's lots of ways to make it in the world financially. There's lots of ways to get to financial independence. The question really comes down to what suits you best? Again, Mike, thank you so much for leaving a voicemail. And I just wanted to make sure everyone knows if you have interest in having me talk about a voicemail of yours on air, I can't say that I'll get to all of them, but go to earnandinvest.com. There is a leave a voicemail button, hit it, leave me your message. And if possible, I might talk about it on the show. All right, I keep things running just for a little while to catch our discussion afterwards. Um, Anything I didn't mention, like, you know, this is a chance, like I said, kind of in a sense for you to talk about venture capital or specifically creative ventures to the world. Anything we kind of left out that you wish we talked about? Uh, I think I'm wondering whether or not it would have been interesting because you get to give me the opportunity, but whether it'd be interesting to talk about very specific examples just to make it more visceral to people in terms of the type of companies that we're talking about. It's like, what is deep tech and what is VC and what does all this mean? Like one example of a really interesting company is uh, one called Terra CO2, which is a geopolymer company. And what that means is it uses material science to make concrete without the traditional like limestone, a bunch of stuff that normally goes into concrete. So you don't need to mine all that stuff. All you need to do is take basically rocks and sand, so mine tailings, use this special geopolymer process, and suddenly it actually is chemically identical to normal cement at a fraction of the uh, carbon footprint. And given where things are going with climate change and given that 
we need a lot more houses and other things still and cement and concrete are pretty important in terms of the construction process companies like this are super interesting and super important um yeah so i mean i I think stuff maybe some more visceral examples like that too you guys seem very kind of climate and society aware at creative ventures i mean it sounds like you most of the things you work on are really to benefit society not just to kind of make money which i don't really feel all venture capitalists are like that yeah i don't think they are and i think it does come from both a lot of the individuals in the investment team have that kind of background who care a lot about making an impact uh and my own background as well i mean i came from the nonprofit world but that helped actually inform how i was thinking about approaching this because I did see that eventually nonprofits often evolved in such a way where it's hard to actually measure what you're doing. And a lot of times because of that, it degrades to, well, I want to do this because I want to do this. So it kind of becomes ego politics just because there's no guiding North Star. Whatever you think of like profit motive, it is a guiding North Star. So the way that we actually set up Creative Ventures was like, look, we're not a double bottom line firm meaning we don't have a bottom line in terms of financial and we don't have a bottom line in terms of impact. It's all financial. But what we're going to do is we're going to set up the firm that our target investment areas, if we can succeed in them, are all going to make a huge societal impact. We think that's a better way of aligning it where you essentially are maximizing one thing, but maximizing that one thing will create the impact in the world that you want. Talk to me about the growth of Creative Ventures. I don't know if you measure the growth in dollars invested or what, but how has it grown over the last bunch of years? Uh, I mean, we've grown in terms of people we've brought on. Uh, we've brought on a lot of really interesting other investment team members, and we're actually one of the few venture capital firms that promotes internally. Uh, so most VC firms do not, uh, but we have new folks who basically have both backgrounds in terms of PhDs and say, microbiology or material science, as well as uh, having investment backgrounds in terms of different funds or whatnot they've been part of or different startup groups that they've been part of. So that's one big expansion area. Our funds have gotten bigger. I can't specifically say how much or whatnot due to SEC rules, but our funds have gotten bigger. We've invested more. And I think our most important metric is that many of our companies have scaled a huge amount. So in certain cases, uh, say 10 or 100x, just in terms of the size that they've gotten. So we're pretty proud of that, because as I said, as far as for us, the more our companies scale, the more impact they have. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.